All right. Well, why don't you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I hope, I hope you are um, enjoying our study of Hebrews. I will tell you, your pastor is. Um, it is a challenge. I will tell you, each week as I open the scriptures, Hebrews, I, I told you at the beginning, isn't really an easy book. Um, and I didn't mean that just for you, <laughs> even for me. I really have to go through this and meditate on it quite a bit to really um, feel confident that I've grasped the sense of what is taking place. And, and certainly here in chapter 4, I really felt that this week. It was really quite a challenge until near the end of the week, the Lord sort of just, as he often does, just sort of made it all click together here. Chapter 4 is really, it, it, what it's doing is continuing the warning that we had at the end of chapter 3. You might remember there are five warnings in the book of Hebrews. The first one came to us at the beginning of chapter 2. Do you remember what the warning was? Don't drift away. Remember that? Don't drift away. When you have the opportunity to, to anchor yourself to the truth, when you hear the truth, take that opportunity. Don't fail to do it because you can drift away so easily from your opportunity to, um, to, to obey the truth and listen to the truth. The second warning we looked at last week, which was the beginning of chapter 3, or the middle of chapter 3, verse 7. I just want to remind you what it says there. Look at chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness. That's what we looked at last Week and, and those opening verses, verses really the second half of verse 7 all the way down to 11, are a quote from Psalm 95. And it really gives us an example from Old Testament history of what happened to those who hardened their heart, which is why we're told not to harden our hearts. And the example was, was Israel's rebellion in the wilderness against God. You might remember that word we looked up, Meribah, rebellion, and the testing or the trial which is Masa. It brings us to a place. It was the, the, the testing where they tested God. Is God really among us? The rebellion where they, they wanted to rebel against God because they thought he wouldn't provide for their needs uh, there at uh, where they would get the water. And so it was called Meribah and Masa because they rebelled and they tested God. And you might remember God was very angry with their rebellion and they're testing, and, and back in verse 10, it says, Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, so I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Because of their rebellion, God did not allow them to enter the promised land. Remember, all of them died in the wilderness. It was just Joshua, Caleb, who were allowed to enter the promised land, and the, the next generation, all the younger uh, people and the children so here, God says, you're not going to enter my rest. And so we were exhorted to guard our hearts in verse 12, to protect our hearts from what? Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Those are hard words. Remember, we looked at all the things that Israel did. We looked at they had a hardness of heart. We looked at they had tested God, that they were going astray from God, that they rebelled against him, sinned against him, disobeyed. All those words are used. But the author takes all of those attitudes and puts them under this sort of one word, unbelief. It was because of their unbelief that God decided not to let them go into his rest or the promised land. 
And what does unbelief do? Well, it tells us that it makes us depart from the living God. So this is really key in understanding this passage because this continues the thought of rest and it continues the thought of departing from God. To be in God's rest is to be with God, but to depart from him is to to not enter his rest. That's the idea here. And verse 19 ended this way. So we see that they could not enter into what? The rest. They could not enter in because of unbelief. Now, I want to draw attention to the words, my rest. That's what's quoted in Psalm 95, my rest. Um, In verse 18, and at the beginning of chapter 4, his rest is used. So you have my rest and his rest, both referring to God's rest. So what is rest? Well, the word here is kataupausis. It's putting to rest or a resting place. It could be to put yourself to rest or a location of rest. Now, this word is only used here in Hebrews. It's only used uh, right here in chapter 3 two times. So we looked at it last week, but four times, or, or sorry, five times in chapter 4 it's, it's used. So it's quite a prevalent word being, being used here. And as we go through this, we're going to get a fuller definition of what is meant by this rest. But I want to take you to the one other place in all of the New Testament where this word is used. It's one place, and it really helps us sort of understand it. It's in Acts chapter 7, verse 49. I'll just put it up on the screen for you. And this is Luke quoting from Isaiah, Isaiah 66, 1. But I put up Acts 7, 49 for you. It says this, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? So what is he saying here? Well, heaven is where his throne is. The earth is his footstool. But is there really a house for him? Is there really a place that God has rest? He does no location of rest. There's not a location of rest for him. Now, rest for the believer, for you and I, it does include a location. I mean, many of us are looking forward to that location, heaven. There is a heavenly rest, and Hebrews talks a lot about that. We're going to look at the heavenly country, the better country, the heavenly Jerusalem. All those things are to remind us of the rest. But when we refer to rest, there is an element that is an already. We already have rest, and there's an element of not yet. Just like a lot of things, an already and a not yet. Rest in the location of heaven, that's the not yet. We're not there yet. We are going to get there one day. But a state of rest is already in us. We should already be experiencing a state of rest. And it's the state of rest which was promised to Israel. In Isaiah 28, God is rebuking Ephraim. He's rebuking Jerusalem. And this is what he says. To whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. Yes, they were going to be brought into a location, Canaan, but what they were really rejecting was this rest, this refreshing that is found in him. Why? Because they wouldn't listen to him. They wouldn't obey him. In the New Testament, Jesus calls people to come to him and to find that rest. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So for the New Testament believer, we are to experience this thing called uh, rest. And let me just tell you, folks, there is no rest for the soul that is apart from Christ. That rest is only found 
in him. And this is very, very important passage that establishes it. In fact, the um, St. Augustine, he wrote this uh, book called Confessions. He said it very eloquently this way, and actually I put it up on the screen for you. He says this, Thou movest us to delight in praising thee, for thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. And that is the idea, that, that mankind is, is restless. That's the exact word. The, the heart of an unbeliever is a restless heart. It is a heart that's full of worry, anxiety, guilt, shame. It's a heart that's unsatisfied. It's, it's ungrounded. It's unsettled. Scripture says it's easily tossed to and fro by every wind of, of doctrine, and it's without peace. That is the heart that hasn't found rest. But the rest that God promises does bring peace. It does bring forgiveness. It does bring gratefulness. It establishes us and it grounds us. It gives us a firm foundation in this life. It gives us confidence in the hope of the life to come. It gives us joy in this life. It gives us strength. It gives us purpose and it gives us power. All of those things are encompassed within the rest. And had the Israelites remained obedient to God, well, they would have entered into that rest. They would have experienced that promised rest in Canaan, but they never did because of unbelief. And let me tell you, ever since then, every soul on earth which has failed to trust in God has missed God's salvation, rest. And the reason is unbelief. So while chapter 3 is sort of one half, it's a warning to to not harden your hearts, chapter 4 here is an encouragement. Instead, enter God's rest. That is is the, the, the title today. Enter his rest. Don't harden your heart against it, but now enter it. And this is all going to be around the rest that is promised to us. So let's look at this. It's chapter 4, and we're looking up all the way from the beginning, chapter uh, chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to 13. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him 
to whom we must give account. Lord, we just uh, recognize today we have a, a massive passage in front of us, Lord, full of uh, deep, hard truths, Lord. And so we, we need your spirit, the spirit who guides us into truth, the one who reveals truth. Be with us today, Lord. We, we need you. Open our hearts, open our minds to understand what is here because this is of vast importance, not only for the believers that they may understand what rest we should be enjoying, but for the unbeliever to see the importance of entering that rest. So God, be with us today. Guide us into your truth for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, just look right away at number one here um, in verse one. There's a promise of rest. Very simple outline today because it comes right, right from the passage here. There's a promise of rest. In verse one, it says, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Well, this verse really holds a few really important truths, and I want to make sure we understand this. Uh, Here we learn that while the failure of Israel, okay, the failure of Israel in the wilderness uh, resulted in them not experiencing God's rest, in that promised land of Canaan, there is a promise that remains. It's very clearly there. A promise remains of entering his rest. Israel as a people then were not forsaken by God. There are people who believe today in this thing called replacement theology that that Israel has lost the promises, they lost the benefits, they they have been forsaken by God because of their disobedience here. Um, And not just their disobedience in the Old Testament, but also their disobedience in the New Testament because of their ultimate rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So because of those two failures, um, they, uh, the promises of God are no longer applicable to them. Instead, they've come to the New Testament church. That's the, uh, the, the idea. Uh, I don't agree with that, and I think this passage really shows us that that can't be true. We've just been given this really horrible example of, of Israel's failure, and the last words we're ringing in our ears come from verse 19. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Continue reading. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, do you see that? They couldn't, they couldn't enter his rest, but there is a promise that remains, a promise of rest that remains even for Israel. So I don't believe the church has replaced Israel. I think God is faithful to keep his promises to his people, and there is a remnant And they will be called back to him. And we see that come alive in the book of Revelation. But here we see the promise, the promise of rest. It remains. In fact, one of the clearest passages that support this truth is found in Acts. And I just want to take a moment to show you this because there are a lot of churches that will will teach that that the church has replaced Israel. Acts chapter 3. Just make a left-hand turn real briefly. I just want to show this to you. In Acts chapter 3, this is when Peter and John, uh, after Jesus has risen and he's ascended into heaven, Peter and John are out there preaching it, and they go and they heal a lame man in the temple, and that, of course, draws a crowd. And when the crowd comes around, while Peter uses that to his advantage, he begins to preach to them. Now, at first, it's very scathing what he says to them in Acts chapter 3, verse 12. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness, we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, 
glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the prince of life of whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Now, if it just stopped there, then yeah, you would look, wow, this is quite an indictment. You people killed the Holy One. You killed the just. You killed the the prince of life. But guess what? He continues to preach. Skip on down to verse 25. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. If God were completely rejecting Israel, if they had no hope of rest, why is Peter preaching to Israel about turning away from their iniquities? Rest is still available to them and to all who believe. And so we're told back in our passage here, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Now remember, the example of the failure in the wilderness is, is not meant to form a, a theology around God's rejection of the nation of Israel. That's what people try to do. Instead, it's meant to do this, cause us to fear. That's what we're told here. Since this promise remains, and we just saw the, the, the demonstration of those who chose not to enter, since this remains, then fear. There should be an element of, of fear. And now when we think about the example of Israel, that's certainly important. Remember, we started out by looking at how great a start they had, a great a beginning. They had the greatest man, Moses, the greatest leader anyone could ask for, Moses. They had that um, presence of God always with them in the pillar of cloud or in the pillar of fire. They had his power displayed, his favor, his law. And with all those spiritual privileges, they, they came up short. The wilderness generation was rejected because, because collectively they modeled unbelief. And their unbelief kept them from rest. Now, this is why this should cause us to fear. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how long you've been going to church. And I think many people think today that, that you know, they're just basically good. And they're just going to get to heaven. They're going to enter that rest through some kind of works or through, through meditation or through pilgrimages or, you know, you name it. But listen, it's only unbelief that keeps people from his rest. It's unbelief, and therefore, it's belief that brings us into his rest, and we're going to really unpack that uh, when we get to that. But you can have all the spiritual advantages in the world. You could do all the good in the world that there is available to do, but if you don't believe in him, there's no hope for you. And remember, unbelief as defined in what we looked here in our passage in, in Hebrews, as defined by a rebellious, disobedient, sinful people going astray from God, departing from the living God. That's the unbelief. So this is why we're told here to be in a state of fear. Now, when I say we, I don't mean Christians. Christians are not to be afraid of God. We don't fear him in the way in which this text is speaking. We are to have a reverential fear of him, a reverential fear of, uh, in, in an awe sense, a respectful sense, an honor. But that's not the fear that's being called for here. Seeing how God dealt with this unbelieving Israel should bring fear. In fact, he says it should bring terror. That's the idea. 
And Jesus says the same thing. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And you know, sadly, the world does not have fear of God. They don't have a fear of falling into the hands of the living God, but Hebrews itself will tell us it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And you look at our world today, look at it. It has no fear of God. But guess what? Paul looked at the world in his day, and he said the same thing. Just has no fear of God. In fact, Romans 3 just gives us what the problem with mankind is. Romans chapter 3, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's ultimately the problem, isn't it? It tells us very clearly, doesn't it, that no one does good? Yet we still have people saying, well, I'm basically good. Well, no one does good. No one is good enough to enter his rest. So my question would be for you, where are you? Have you entered that rest? A promise, we're told a promise still remains. This is great news. Remember, we looked at this last week about the today. While it is today, enter that rest because when tomorrow comes, it's, it's too late. But now the, the author is going to give us elements of this rest the elements of this rest are very, very important. It's going to cover the mo- most of what we're looking at today, verses 2 through 10. Look at verse 2. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Now, the gospel means good news, doesn't it? That's what the gospel means. And so this word, gospel, is used here to refer to the good news that was proclaimed to us, the gospel, but also the good news that was proclaimed to Israel. Israel was in slavery, and so it was great news to hear that they were going to be taken out of slavery, out of Egypt, and into this promised land flowing with milk and honey. That's, that's good news. Likewise for us, we can be freed from slavery to sin. We're promised this, this rest, and that's good news. So the good news, what he's saying here, the good news was proclaimed to them, and the good news, the gospel, was proclaimed to us. Both groups heard it, is his point. Both groups could hear it, but... The word which they heard did not profit them. The word which that group heard, it didn't do them any good. Why? Not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Do you see the difference? What was the difference? Belief, faith, trust. That's the difference. So this is the first element of rest. It is accessed by faith. There is only one way, folks, to enter that rest. And we're told it's by faith. You know, hell is going to be populated by a lot of people who heard the gospel, who read the gospel, who studied the gospel. Gosh, probably even who taught it. It's going to be full of people like that. The issue is not knowledge. The issue is not the hearing. The issue is the faith, the belief, the accepting of it, the trusting in it. Remember we talked about the belief and the receive? The receiving of it. In Matthew chapter 7, Verse 22 to 23, we find there are going to be people very surprised. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, 
and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That is a scary picture. Those people had knowledge. They had works. But guess what they didn't have? Faith. How, how could you say that? Because we've already looked at what belief is and what unbelief is. Unbelief is sin, rebelliousness, hearted heart. And he says, you practice lawlessness. They had all those benefits, but they didn't have the one thing they needed. And that was faith. That was the problem the Jews had. This is what Jesus was trying to establish when he talked to the Pharisees and to the Jews of his day. In John chapter 5, verses 39 to 40, he said this, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. You're going through the scriptures. You're looking all over the place to find how can we just keep the word of God. We're going to keep the Ten Commandments. We're going to make more rules. We're going to follow God. We're going to do works. We're going to do works. We're going to do works. And he says, you think you're going to have eternal life. But these things don't point to eternal life through those. They point to me. And you're not willing to come to me. Not willing to come to me. If you came to me, you'd have life. But see, they had the same problem. They had the words. They had the knowledge. They just didn't believe or they were not willing to trust Jesus. But what about those who do believe? Well, here we look at verse 3. For we who have believed do enter that rest. You see that? There you have it. It's accessed by faith. This explains why Paul was always so thankful for the churches that demonstrated just faith. Remember how often he just writes to, to churches about their belief and their faith? Because that's how it has to begin. People who truly accept it, receive it, and believe it, and follow it. We're going through the book of 1 Thessalonians and now 2 Thessalonians, but back in, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul was writing to this church, they're doing so good. And this is what he writes about. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. He's constantly giving thanks to God. Why? Because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. The reason he was constantly um, praising God for this church is because they received the word of God, identified that's not just the word of men, that's the word of God. And because they did that, then that's effectively working in them who believe. God works those things in you when we accept it as truth. And listen, faith is a must. Hebrews eleven six says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So this rest that we're talking about, it begins with faith. The faith that Israel did not demonstrate. They had God doing miracles in their midst and they still said what? Is God even among us? Does God even really care? It showed that they didn't actually really believe in him. They heard it all. They saw it all. They didn't believe it. Same thing could happen today. People who sit in chairs and pews and churches for weeks, months, years, hearing it, hearing it, seeing it, seeing it. Listen, none of that's going to matter. God's not keeping a tally of attendance. He's not looking at how much you've heard it. Do you have faith? Have you accepted it? Have you received it? It's only accessed by faith. And this rest is instituted by God. No one else created this rest. 
You cannot get this rest by meditating to this higher plane of rest. People will tell you that. I've found the way to rest. Yeah, you did. It's called death. (laughs) That's the only rest you're going to find. It's instituted by God. Look at verse 3, the second half. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Few things happen in here. The point of repeating this phrase from Psalm uh, 95, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, I think, is to emphasize the my. Because he said it a few times, hasn't it? We've seen this phrase in chapter 3. Here it comes to us again, and I think it's to highlight the my. We're talking about those who have believed in verse 3. For we who have believed do enter that rest. Why? Because he said, so I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It's his rest. And then he goes on to talk about that rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, from the completion of creation, in other words. This is what he's referencing in, in verse 4. It's, it's the creation. Verse 4, he says, For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. What is he quoting there? That's way back in Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. In fact, I put it up for you. This is what it says. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. This is the beginning. This is the creation. Day one, day two, evening, morning, right? The whole thing. But you get to the seventh day and we find out his work is done. He's rested. It was not a rest that he needed because he was tired or weary. It's a rest because the work was finished. The work is complete. There's no more work to do. And so God says, and now it's rest. Does that make sense? So so those who enter God's rest find rest from their work. You no longer need to work for salvation to please God, to earn favor, to get to heaven. Jesus cried it out from the cross. It is finished, which means there's nothing you do to add to it. If there were, Jesus would have said, it is almost finished. But he didn't. It is finished. The work was completed, completed in Christ. And God's rest has been available to mankind since creation. Even Old Testament believers entered entered his rest through faith in the one that he would send, Jesus Christ. That's how they came into rest as well. Adam and Eve enjoyed the rest. They had that rest. This was what God intended until Satan tempted them to sin, and then they they no longer had the rest. So look at this. It says, I want to point out the reference to the seventh day again. Okay, the seventh day. That's quoted there in verse uh, 4. God rested on that seventh day from all his works. It brings us back to also the Old Testament. And God resting from his work was a basis for something that came into later. And it was the institution of a Sabbath rest. Have you heard of that, right? Sabbath rest. And it's actually in the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus chapter 20, this is where the command comes. It was a command for the Israelites to cease working on the Sabbath. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days 
the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So here we also have this idea of this Sabbath rest. Because God rested, he set up this week pattern. We have a seven-day week that comes from Scripture. <laughs> and the seventh day was this Sabbath day of, of rest. But this brings into question, and many people have questioned this, what about New Testament believers today? Are we still bound to this commandment, this fourth commandment? Is it a sin if we work on the Sabbath? Well, first of all, let me remind you that uh, the early church, the, the, the apostles, when they began to meet after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended, they began to meet, we're told, on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. So their gathering was on a Sunday. It was not on the Sabbath day. It's several places, but just put one of them up for you for sake of time. Acts 20, verse 7 says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to part the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. I'm going to model that today. I'm just going to go on till midnight, so just get ready. Um, but no, the, the Sabbath rest was instituted, listen to this, okay, in the Old Testament as a symbol as a symbol for the true rest that would come in Christ. And that's why all the ceremonial aspects of the Sabbath have been put aside. We don't have to do those those things. When the true rest came, there was no longer any need for the symbol. Paul, just to show you here, explicitly condemns those who would command obedience to the Sabbath regulations. He does it in Colossians chapter 2. Look at verses 16 to 17 here. So let no one judge you in food, or in drink, or regarding a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So in other words, the food, uh, the drink restrictions and food restrictions, the, the festivals, such as a new moon celebration or a Sabbath, those are uh, a shadow of things to come. But when the substance, or you could say the reality, is found in Christ, once that is found, when you find Christ, then you no longer need the shadow. Does that make sense? So the shadow is no longer needed for us because Christ has come. And so it is through Christ that we enter his rest. So how do you put all this together? We turn from a life of disobedience, which was modeled by Israel. We turn from that. We repent from that. We turn to Christ in faith. We come to him in faith, and then we enter the rest of God. It's not through works. We don't get there by works. It's through that channel of faith, which we find from Scripture is in itself a gift as well. So this rest, which has been available since the creation, which the rest was intended for mankind, we're reminded here again in verse 5 that there are those who shall not enter my rest. So on the one hand, people who have believed in verse 3 and have entered the rest, enter his rest. It's a rest that God ordained from the foundation of the world, ready for mankind. Remember we kind of looked at that idea earlier on with mankind's right to rule over angels um, and, and, and kind of coming back to that place in the end? This is sort of the same idea. Man was supposed to have a rest, be, be experiencing the state of rest, but that all went away when sin came. And so now this rest is available to us. It's available to believers, but he issues another warning in verse 5, and again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. 
which is another reminder that if it took faith, if it took people to believe to enter that rest, and that rest is still available and has been since the foundation of the world, enter it. Enter it, is what he's saying. And the still available is really this last element of faith. It begins here in verse 6. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying, In David, today, after such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So we're told here it remains that some must enter it. And this is the question. Well, why does it say some must enter this rest? Well, a couple of things. If God closed the door to something he already started, then that thing would be ineffective and God doesn't do that. But second here, God closed the door to rest when he swore in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. But then we're told there's a promise of rest that remains. Back in verse 1, the promise still stands. Even though some chose to disobey and not enter the rest, that didn't nullify the promise. So where is this promise? That's the question. Where is the promise rest? Well, we read it, but now he's bringing it out into light here. Look at verse um, 7. Again, he designates a certain day, saying, In David... Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Uh, so much here. I'm trying to unpack this the best I can. So, so twice in chapter 3, the author quoted Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8. He did that in, in verse 7. He did it in verse 15. And here he does it again. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, here, interestingly enough, the author quotes saying it's David. Do you see that? He designates a certain day saying in David. Now, this is true. David wrote Psalm 95. But just glance back at verse 7 again. Who did he already tell us who wrote this? The Holy Spirit. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, this is important. I think this is a reason that he does this. Beginning this whole warning, he says there's a warning from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says today, don't harden your hearts. But now he's bringing it into an argument from history. And so he's saying, there has been a promise made. A promise of entering that rest still remains. And you should be going, well, where is that promise? He says, aha, David said it. David said it. And he said it in a place that I've already told you that he said it. It is today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. David wrote that about his day. You know what? David did not live in the time of the the Israel wilderness time. You understand that, right? You have to know a little bit about history, otherwise this won't make sense. David came many, 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 many years later. Many years later. Israel wandered in the wilderness. They failed. They disobeyed. They didn't enter the land of Canaan. They didn't get that promised rest. David, years later, writes, Today, don't harden your heart. There is still a promise of rest. And the author says, Yeah, there is one, because David wrote about one, which took place a long time later. And in David's day, he told the audience of his day, today is your day. Do you see that? Today, don't harden your heart. Today, enter. Don't, don't wait. So verse 8 even puts this point clearer. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. So this is another aspect of this. Joshua was the one that led the children of Israel 
into the promised land. Now, remember, only two from the previous generation entered. All the rest died. Joshua and Caleb. They were the only two spies that said, the land is good. God is good. Let's go take the land. And all the rest said, no, we're like grasshoppers and we're fearful. So they didn't take the land. But Joshua and Caleb were promised to take the land. So Joshua is the general. He takes in char- charge over Moses because Moses isn't allowed to go in the promised land. Remember that? Because he struck the rock to bring out water instead of speaking to the rock to bring out water. So Moses was not, was not allowed to be the one to bring them into the land. It was Joshua. So Joshua brought the second generation of Israelites into the promised land. Now, here's what the author is saying. If Joshua succeeded, if they entered the rest and the rest was completed and there's no rest available, then why years later would someone say, there's another day? There's another uh, promise of of rest. That's why in verse 7, he wrote that. David says today, after such a long time, after such a long time since Joshua, David came along and said, oh, today there's a day of rest. There's an opportunity. Don't harden your heart. Enter. And that's the point here. Joshua, had, if he had given them real rest, there would not be an opportunity later on. Now, there's something really interesting here. Maybe you've heard about this. In the Old Testament, there are types. Have you heard that word before? When you go to the Old Testament, you see types. They are types of things, uh, realities in the New Testament. Types of Christ exist in the Old Testament. This is one of them. Joshua and Jesus are the same word in the Greek, Iesus. Same word. So when you read this in the Greek, you're looking at, well, Jesus. So you have an Old Testament type, Jesus, pictured of leading the people into the rest. He was the one successfully did that. But that rest wasn't finished. That rest wasn't complete because otherwise he would not have spoken of another day. There would be another day, and that other day would be when Jesus, not Joshua, comes, dies on the cross, and makes the way available. Interesting, isn't it? So there's another day. It's today. David declares it today in his people for his, uh, for his people in his time, and the Holy Spirit for us says it's today because in verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, so, so you see that it's it's not closed. It was available for David's time, and it's available for us. There still remains a promise to enter, and that's verse 9. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Now, you know, there's also a little bit of a transition starting to take place with the idea of this rest. It's definitely moving beyond a location. It's definitely moving into more of the idea of a, of a state, that all of God's people are promised this rest. All people, so that includes the Jew. He's promised uh, a rest from all of our labor, a rest from all of our uh, suffering. It, it will enjoy eternal rest, uh, but only after we finish our work here on earth. But also, while we are on earth, we experience a state of rest. You, you should be experiencing, as believers, <laughs> peace, joy. You should have all these things called fruit of the Spirit. You should have all those kind of things that help bring this state of rest to, be, to pass. So we want to enter this rest. We will do that. And the, the, the not yet part of it, the not yet part of the, the rest, the part where we go to our eternal rest in, in heaven, that will come. And that will come when we finished our work here. Just as God uh, f- finished his work of creation, as we were told here, and then he rested from his work, we too must faithfully finish our work first. It's 
the work that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians. So the people of, of God are, are, are going to experience this rest. It's not a work that we do that's required of us to enter the rest. But Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, you don't have to turn if you don't want, but it's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verse 12, uh, verse 8 first, he says, Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. He's talking to a church. He's talking to believers. Some people plant, some people water, but each one is doing work, being faithful to the Lord, and we'll each receive our own reward according to our own work, our own labor. And then he explains that in verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, (coughs) precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. See, believers do work. We labor. We do work for our our, our, our Christ, our Savior. We do work for Him. And, and we're told that we're going to be rewarded on that. And, and you can build with gold and silver and precious jewels, but some people are, are building with wood, hay, stubble. And what's going to happen in the fire? Well, the wood, hay, stubble is going to burn up. There's going to be nothing. And he says, well, you'll be saved. You'll suffer loss. Those things won't be there. Um, but some will enter in having built something that's really true and, and lasting. But both enter. Does that make sense? So we don't do works to enter the rest. We follow Christ faithfully, and we're told to diligently seek him. And while we diligently seek him, we do the work that he's called us uh, to do. But as we look at verse 10 here, this tells us entering that rest brings a cessation to the work. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his that eternal rest, there's no more work to be done. But while we're here on earth, guess what? We're his servants. There's work to be done. That's how you look at it. I'm not working to get to the rest, but I'm, I'm one of his servants. And then I look around and go, there's work to be done. And we need to be faithful to do the work. So here comes the challenge, the challenge to rest in verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Now here you could just all of a sudden go, wait, hold on. Now I have to be diligent to enter the rest. So it does take works to enter the rest then. No, it doesn't. Be diligent. Spudazzo. It is to endeavor, to exert oneself. It takes energy. It takes activity. It takes diligence, discipline to, to enter the rest and not fall into the example of disobedience. You can't disconnect the two. Okay. We can easily be distracted by sin, derailed by sin. But he says, be diligent to enter by staying faithful, by remaining faithful and obedient to him. Remember, it's hard-heartedness and sin and rebellion and, and, and going astray. All those things led to unbelief. But he says here, be diligent to enter that rest so that you don't fall into disobedience. And listen, believers are called to be diligent. We're not called to be lazy. We don't go, hey, I've got my faith. I'll just sit back now and wait for Jesus to come. A lot of Christians think that's their job, but that is not it. In 2 Timothy 2.15, it says this, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 
wow, be diligent to present myself approved to God. God has to approve me. The idea is that I want to be a worker who's not ashamed. I'm working faithfully to God. He'll be approving like, like a son doing something for his father, right? He, he wants the approval. Am I doing a good job, Dad? Did I do a good job with this? They want approval. It's the same thing. I just want, to, I want to approval from my father. I was diligent to do the work that you called me to do. Our faith takes effort. It takes obedience. It takes discipline. And listen, Jesus told a parable about a lazy servant. He gave some talents to some of his servants, five to one, two to another, and one to one. Remember that? And, and the guys that were faithful duplicated the, the, the talents. But the one that was unfaithful, he just had one talent. He went and buried it. And so when the, the master came back, well, Jesus takes over and says, you're a wicked and lazy servant. That's what Jesus calls that man. And look at, this is the end of that servant. In Matthew 25, verse 30, and cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What did it prove? It proved that that person didn't really trust his master, wasn't faithful to do the things that God called him to do. Christians have assurance of the fact that they have entered his rest and will one day enjoy that rest in the presence of God by doing his will to the end. That's what this passage has been talking about. Starting back in chapter uh, 3, verse 6, hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. If you do that, you have confidence and assurance in salvation. Uh, verse 14, hold the beginning of their confidence steadfast to the end. As believers, we're called to be faithful to the end. In fact, in Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 to 27, Jesus is walking through the churches. This is the letters to the churches, and this is what he says. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I also have received from my Father. So the overcomer is one that keeps uh, his works until the end, who is a faithful servant until the end. Jesus remained faithful to the end, so must we. And so we're told to make every effort to enter that rest. Philippians 2, 12, very well-known verse as well. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, get what it says here, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Here's both sides of the coin in one verse once again. For the human side, listen, folks, we got to work out our salvation of fear and trembling. How did this whole thing start out? Listen, there are people who, who disobeyed and disbelieved, and they didn't enter the rest. So you need to fear, he says. Be fearful going forward. Strive to enter that rest. Be diligent to enter that rest. Be diligent to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But then it's God who works in you. It's God who works in you. That's the other side. You can't do it in your own strength is my point. You can't do it in your own power. If the Holy Spirit is abiding in you, then he will continue it till the end. He will be faithful to complete it. We trust in him, but we also exert energy. I don't sit at my desk each week and go, okay, God, write my sermon. I still be sitting there right now, looking at my blank page, right? I exert energy. I put diligence. I study. I do these things. But guess what? The Holy Spirit's active too. He's inside. He's working it through me. Both go together. So we're called to to strive, to be diligent, to enter, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Now, this is important. The example of Israel is again brought to mind right before we read this verse, which is one of the most well-known verses in all the Scripture, verse 12. So the context is the disobedience of Israel. For the word of God 
is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The lesson from Israel's disobedience in the Old Testament is not just a historical tale. It's not just a good story. It goes right in to say it's the Word of God. And the Word of God is a uh, several things, and we're going to unpack this real briefly here. This is the Word of God. Three things regarding His Word. It's a living Word. I don't know how to explain it. It's a living Word, folks. It's living. It's breathing. It's powerful. Two, these two words, living and powerful, mean alive and active. It tells us that what it plans to accomplish and it sets out to accomplish, it will accomplish, which is incredible to think. I don't agonize over, is God's word doing what he says it will do? I, I just trust that it will. It will. I, I, just, I, I study and I prepare and I read and I, I'll, I'll preach it and then I, I leave it to the Lord. Isaiah 55, 11 says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. That's the word of God. I've had many people over the years uh, say this to me, and I've, I've said it to pastors before, that I came in, I thought you were preaching to me. I, I, I was talking about this thing the other day. I was, I was thinking the same thing. Listen, I, I don't have cameras in all of your houses, all right? And I'm not going, I've got to add that one for that person. I've got to add this one for this. I just study the word, I prepare it, and guess what? It's living and powerful. God is actively working his word through each and every one of you. He has something for each one of you. It's incredible. It's, you can't deny it. There's something about it. It's living. It's, it's active. But also, it's a penetrating word. A penetrating word. Look what it says. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. It has the ability to, to pierce the hardest of hearts. The hardest of hearts. Penetrate to the deepest, most hidden recesses of, of man's heart. How many hard hearts against God have been penetrated even with nothing but his word even over the last couple of years, right? When, when, when lockdown was happening and churches were, were you know, closed and, and weren't, you know, active, God's word was active and he was penetrating hearts. He was working salvation in. There's a story told about 18th century uh, evangelist George Whitfield. And as he would go around and, 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 and do these open-air evangelist crusades, he had this group of punks. I don't know what else, you know, they, they were mockers that would travel around and follow him called the Hellfire Club. And one of them, this guy named Thorpe, would learn his mannerisms and his facial expressions and, and all of his sermons. He would learn them and then mockingly do them for his gang and for others. So he would basically do an impression. Now listen, because he was learning God's word, by on the spot he got saved. On the spot converted. That just tells you, it's a living, penetrating word. It did it to him. And he became, he actually became a great church leader in Bristol. Mr. Thorpe. Incredible. It's a penetrating word. It'll penetrate the hardest of hearts. And it's also a discerning word. It says it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. No one knows the true intentions the motivations of your heart. We're highly complex creatures, aren't we? And, and there's a mixture of the good and bad motivations in us. There's the spiritual, there's the fleshly. And, and, um, and you know, God's word easily discerns the truth. 
There's no, no intention that you have is, is hidden from him. He knows exactly your, your thoughts. He knows your intentions. He knows whether we're truly believing or disbelieving, obeying or disobeying. It doesn't matter if you've managed to fool me, your pastor. It doesn't matter if you managed to fool your family. You haven't fooled God is the idea. He's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and he is the one that you have to worry about. Israel had no chance because they were confronted with the living word of God. And listen, you have no chance either if you have not entered that rest because God's word will pierce to the very heart. And verse 13 really lays it out for us. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It just means we're completely vulnerable. In fact, the word there, open, is a very interesting word. It's trakalizo, and it means to lay bare. It means to uncover. It means to expose. But there's a couple metaphorical um, uses of it in the New Testament. One of them is for a wrestler to grab another wrestler by the throat, rendering him um, uh, you know, immovable. He's useless. He can't do anything. The other one is for a criminal on trial. They put a pointed dagger beneath his chin so that when he's facing his accusers and about to, to get uh, justice done, he can't bow his head in shame. He can't turn. He's got to face it. And this is the idea here, that whatever the actual intent of that metaphor, it's clear what's, what's being said here. You're in the grip of God. There's just no escape. No creature is hidden. Everyone's going to have to face him. And believers who have entered his rest are in his rest. But listen, you won't be able to fool him. The word of God is searching out the very intentions of the heart. And, you know, you won't give an account to, to me. You won't give an account to your family, but you'll give an account to God. A.W. Tozer said this about all that God knows. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and on earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, and hell. No creature is hidden. No creature is hidden. And just to close, you know, Revelation, there's an amazing picture of this. This is exactly what's going to take place. Um, during the Great Tribulation, the church is gone, and the unbelievers are on the world, and God's wrath is being poured out. In Revelation 6, verse 12, it says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. And then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And here it is, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come 
and who is able to stand. In the end, the mightiest people on earth, the bravest, every soul will be trying to hide themselves. But Hebrews tells us there will be no opportunity for that because it will be laid bare. And so really this concludes the warning section of this this whole chapter. On the one part, he says, well, don't harden your heart. You have a hard heart. There's just no opportunity there. But before that hardening happens, and while it is still today, and folks, it's still today. Christ has not returned. You're not dead. You're sitting here, right? While it's still today, you have a chance to enter that rest. He says, but don't wait. Don't wait. He, he wrote it three, four times in here. Today, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Instead, enter his rest. How do you do that? Very, very simply, let go. <laughs> Just let go. Let go of your world. Let go of your life. Give it all to him. Listen, you have no control over it. Turn from your old life and say, I want the life that you have for me. And listen, he will be faithful. He will be faithful to you. Trust him with the results. Trust him with the results. Because listen, the rest is better because we saw what happens to those who disobey. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. What a challenging passage before us, Lord. I just pray that uh, your word would go out faithfully. Lord, that you would penetrate the hearts, that you would prick the conscience, open up the minds to the truth that is here, Lord. Thank you for the writer of Hebrews, Lord, for the breaks that he takes to stop and to bring, uh, Lord, to people's minds the things that he's been teaching to say, this is an opportunity for you. Don't wait. It's today, but none of us know that we're going to get tomorrow. We're told that life is like a vapor. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. So today is the day of salvation. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here today that has not entered his rest, that they would just let go of themselves and trust you with their life faithfully, giving themselves to you, God. Thank you for your word to us today. I pray that your people would be encouraged and strengthened. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 Thank you, Kevin. That was very...